0: You are listening to the podcast from Isaiah Church. Stay tuned to it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hey, great to be back with you here. Welcome everybody online and in the room today. And yeah, you saw that that moment at KidCon—the things we'll do for Jesus, right? Uh, that's your little shine, Smith. Living her best life right there, for sure. A uh, little thing, we were, were in the middle of our rehearsal in the last moment, we were, you know, the, the day before, and we're, we're sitting there doing our lines, and, and she's like, she's whispering to me, I'm about to put a pie in your face. <laughs> Just the, the whole time, like, anyway. Uh, it, was, it was a good time. Uh, for sure, great to be with you all all today here and of course to honor and celebrate Christmas. A few years ago, just a few, when I was in college and Carrie and I back then were just friends at the University of Houston. We were brand new Christians at the time and we uh, were going to this little inner city church in Houston, Texas off Old Spanish Trail. Some of you may know where that is. And this church was amazing. Uh, They had a heart to redeem the inner city uh, and they met in a former crack house and the only ventilation we had in the building was through some bullet holes. It's a true story. Uh, and though, even though I was clearly the outsider, we were clearly the outsiders, we were the only ones there who looked like us, super pasty, SPF wearing 100 folks, that's us. Um, only ones there who looked like that, but they loved us. And one night they came over to the house where I was living with some of my roommates and they loved me some more that night through a game they taught me called Pass the Wrap. Pass the rap, and if you haven't heard of that, we're gonna teach you all about that today, and pass the rap goes like this. Uh, Pass the rap goes when everybody sits in a circle, and you start to create a collective beat together. Okay, so let's try that. This is happening, okay, this is a thing. So we're gonna, There we go, that's right, keep keep going, keep going, don't stop, all right? And so everybody in the circle, right, Uh, the, the rap gets passed, and then it's your responsibility to create an improvisational poem also known as a freestyle rap, that's right. And so the rap's getting passed around, the rap's coming my way, and I totally try to like dodge the rap and fumble the rap and ignore the rap, but the rap kept getting passed and the rap ended up in my lap, and I think I said something about like this. My name is Morgan and I'm here to say that I love Jesus in a major way. That's it, it was bad, that's all I had. All right, that's all I had. It was terrible actually, but those All those Jesus people cheered me, like I was like Lecrae or somebody. And so I've never forgotten it. And it actually changed my life in a way, and where I'm going to talk about that today. Because they were saying in that moment, here's what I loved about it, besides teaching me a new game, maybe you'd like to play that at your community group or not, right? Uh, But they were saying, yes, we see you. And yes, you're different than us. And yeah, for real, your rap stinks, but we love you. We love you. You're one of us. And it was super meaningful. And what they were offering me is something that I think we should take a look at today. I'd like to take a look at today in depth. They were offering me the power of friendship. The power of friendship. And their friendship changed my life and it shaped my life and it shaped my ministry into what it is today. And here's what I've come to know and believe as a result. That friendship is, I want you to hear me today. Friendship is the most powerful force in the world. It's the most powerful force in the world. Nations rise and fall upon friendships. Kingdoms have come and gone based upon faithful or failed friendships. The best businesses, the best churches, the best families, and marriages are all built around great friendships. Think, of, for example, of some great friendships throughout history that have shaped history. For example, David and Jonathan uh, in the Bible. I think we've got a little bit of a sort of a kid's drawing there. Think about Dr. Martin Luther King and Ralph David Abernathy, if you know that relationship, or, or, or C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, that was a great friendship, or some other great friendships that have changed the world and changed our lives, like like Bert and Ernie. <laughs> Bert and Ernie, that's a, that's a great friendship right there. Look at those folks, yeah. How about this, how about Kirk and Spock? It's for all you sci-fi fans, or as Carrie says, Morgan's people. Um, how about this, this couple here, the Fresh Prince? And Carl and right, yeah, because today it's a story all about how my life got turned upside down. Um, I'm kidding, come on, like four of you know that. My point is, the power of friendship is something that changes your life and changes the world. And so let me try to show you how that happens through the story of one of the wise women of Christmas. Wise women of Christmas because that's how we're looking at this December, we're looking at a number of women's lives as we try to build a backstory to the birth of Jesus Christ. We're looking at some of their stories because long before there were wise men who offered gifts, there were some wise women who offered their lives and that's who we're looking at this month. So let's meet our second wise woman today, her name, is Ruth. Her name is Ruth, and her story takes place roughly 1300 BC, and it begins like this in the little book that bears her name. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, this is a rival nation to Israel, this is important. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. So here we meet a man named Elimelech, who out of desperation to keep his family alive in a famine, he immigrated with his wife and children to Moab, again the enemy of Israel. But while they are there, things go from bad to worse. It says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So in a few short strokes here, we read a fairly depressing, crippling turn of events. It appears that in his pain, here's what you're supposed to pick up here, that Elimelech had lost his faith. Abandoned his faith in the one true God. He gave his two sons these pagan Moabite names. He named them Malon and Kilion. That means sick and wasting away. And his two sick sons marry idol-worshiping women, something forbidden by Jewish law. But when Naomi hears uh, that there's actually food once more back in H.E. Bethlehem, she and her two daughters, come on, you know what I mean, her two, two daughters, daughters-in-law decide to make the journey back to where they once belonged, to their homeland to try to survive. Verse seven, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And so I want to pause right here and say and acknowledge something. That I think this is a picture of where many of us are. Where we might be today. Because many of us likely, maybe even you today, are in a similar position as Naomi, as Orpah, as Ruth. Many of us over the past season of our lives have been deeply and possibly negatively affected for the worse. We've been affected by national tragedies, all kinds of Famines, so to speak, over this last season. Like, there's been like a, a COVID famine, an economic famine, this political famine, a racial tension famine, an injustice famine. These are things that have disrupted us. They've cut us off from our old lives and relationships, maybe caused some of us to even relocate, maybe made us worse for the wear, and then in the middle of it, in the middle of our struggle, at the height of our pain, then some of us may have even endured tragic loss of someone that we loved, like a death in your family. I know there's been a death in this church family, because our children's pastor, if you didn't know, it was sort of referenced a moment ago, died suddenly and unexpectedly last month. And when these things happen, you just ask the question, where do we go next? Right? I mean, what do we do with what we've been through? How can we make it when we've experienced now years, perhaps, of disconnection and loss and then tragedy upon grief? On all of that, we find ourselves, many of us here today, like Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, all of us setting out on a road, a road to recovery, the road to our future on the road hopefully to future health. And some of us, again, you know, you're brand new here at Mosaic and you're asking the same question. Am I on the road here? I've come today, Pastor Morgan. I've come, am I on the road that's going to lead me to the right place? Like, is there a home for me at Mosaic? Some of you have been here for years. You're looking around and you're asking, who are all these new people? <laughs> on this journey with me and with us, I think just all of us now are setting out like these women, setting out, seeking a new life, seeking a home in the aftermath of loss, suffering. So what's it gonna take, is my question, to make it on that road, on the road home, on the road to recovery? What can sustain us on the road to healing and a path forward? Well, let's find out, verse eight. And it says, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. So Naomi here, she realizes that the journey is going to be difficult, maybe impossible. She realizes that when they arrive, if they make it even, back in Bethlehem, they'll have no future. They'll have to start over. Her daughters-in-law, should they come, will be immigrants, racial outsiders, religious outsiders, representatives of the oppressing group of her people. And so Naomi urges them to go back. And at first, they're being very kind, and they refuse, and they say, no, 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 no! we're going to stick with you, because, you know, the shelves are empty. Back at the Moab's grocery, so to speak. We're coming with you. But she says, again, a second time, no, no, you need to go back, verse 11. She says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? No, return home, my daughters and she asked like listen if, even if I marry tomorrow ladies come on would you wait for, wait for those boys to grow up to marry you no you wouldn't that would be a little weird like I know there was this song called age ain't nothing but a number but come on that was kind of creepy right we remember this and second number two I'm too old to have children there's no future if you come with me so go back and Naomi says oh no it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this, they wept aloud again. And of course they wept because it's been hard. And of course they cried because it's been painful. Oh, but then this happens now. And right here is the turning point of the story. It says, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So what happened? Oh, when the choice became clear. What happened when the stakes were laid out and both women had a choice? Here it is. Orpah cried and Orpah kissed, but Ruth clung. She clung. Orpah sobbed, but Ruth stayed. Why did Orpah leave? Why did she leave? Well, come on, you know. Orpah left because Orpah knew Naomi was right. If she was right, it would be easier leaving. It would be easier going back to where everybody was just like her, looked like her, talked like her, worshipped like her, <clears throat> voted like her, right? It would be easier just going back where she was from. Way easier, more convenient is the word. And so Orpa left and she's never heard from in the story again. That is until roughly 2,000 years later when one American mother accidentally misspells Orpah's name. She switches to P and the R and her daughter grows up to be one of the most powerful women in the world, but that's a different story about a different woman. But this is the turning point in Ruth's life because everything good that happens from here on out in Ruth's or Naomi's life happens because of this single wise choice that Ruth makes. What does Ruth do That's wise, my question. Here it is. On the road to her future, to recovery, to healing, she embraces the power of friendship. Ruth embraces the power of friendship. Orpah kisses, but Ruth clings. Why does Ruth do this, huh? Why does she choose this? Why does she choose the power of friendship over the luxury Of leaving, I think here it is. It's partly because of what Naomi is doing for her in this moment. Verse fifteen. Look, said Naomi. Look at her. I mean, there Orpah goes. (laughs) She's on her way. Look at her. Your sister. She's going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. See, Naomi is urging Ruth to go back, though it would be a death sentenced for Naomi if Ruth actually goes. Naomi's a widow, she's got no husband, she's got no rights, she's too old to get remarried, too old to work, her only hope is to beg, her only relationship left is with Ruth and yet she urges Ruth to go back for Ruth's sake. Listen, this is selfless, others' first love. And when Ruth sees that Naomi has nothing to gain, and everything to lose by urging her to go back. She not only clings to Naomi, but look at this. She converts to faith in the one true God. Verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Some of those beautiful words in the whole Bible right here. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even death separates you and me. So, in other words, Naomi's pain has been evangelistic. Yes, she was bitter. And yes, she raised it to heaven. She's sort of an, uh, you know, a female Job here. But she stays in relationship with a God she can't control. And her pain becomes evangelistic. It brings Ruth to faith. And so in the end, because Naomi loved Ruth selflessly, now in turn, Ruth loves Naomi sacrificially. And they both work to redeem the life of the other. And in the end, they're both redeemed. And we'll see how before we're done today. Friends, church, this is the power of friendship. This is the power of friendship. Let me ask you, do you want someone like that? Oh, we would say yes. Like, can I have a few, you know? A friendship, someone who is working to redeem your life at all times. When others only kiss, they cling. When others only sob, they stay. Listen, they're not handing out these kind of friends on street corners. How can we create and sustain the power of friendship? All right, let me try to show you now three ways right here from the book of Ruth. We're going to go through these in turn. Let's call them the three G's of friendship. All right, three G's of friendship, a G word with a little test for each. And I think we need all three of these to create and sustain the power and a culture for friendship that can change the world. Here we go, number, number one. The first G is something I'll call grit. Grits. The first G. Look at what happens. Then next in the store. Look at this grit right here. It says, "When Naomi realized that Ruth was, what's the word? Come on, determined. determined. Yeah, to go with her. See, Ruth was determined that no matter where Naomi went, she would go too, as long as it wasn't away from God. So here's then the grit question. Here's a sort of a grit test. It's my question." Are your relationships today based only on what others can do for you or on what you can bring to the table in friendship, hmm? Only what others can bring or what you can bring. Because most of us, especially in America, then we move out into friendship, into relationships, into spaces and places, even into a church saying, who is going to reach out to me, hmm? Who's going to meet my needs? Who's going to take the time to get to know me? And you know what? People should do this. We absolutely should do that here. But what if people don't, huh? See, Ruth's so unlike Americans today. Huh? She, is like, she is like the ultimate non-consumer here. She's not in the relationship to get anything out of it because, because there's nothing Naomi can do for her. No, she's determined to love and befriend and serve Naomi no matter the cost and no matter how different they are, right? I mean, Naomi is old, Ruth's young, Uh, and they're from different cultures, different countries, different faiths, different side of the tracks, huh? But Ruth does this, see she had grit when it counted, and that's how she made it on the road to recovery in life. What about you? hmm? Is there someone you know God is pressing on you to remain in relationship with in a kind of gritty way, a gritty relationship? Ruth passed the grit test. Will I, will you, will we? Second G in our relational sort of grid here, second G is the word grace. There's a kind of a grace test as well that friendships have to pass. And this one actually might be the hardest of them all. Here's the grace question. Is there a price tag on your relationships. Is there a price tag? Like, Is there something they could do to make you turn around and leave just overnight? If so, I promise you, the enemy, come on, the enemy will come to pay it. They'll come to pay that price tag. Look at this, when Ruth and Naomi stagger back into town, look at what immediately happens next. It says, the two women went on till they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, could this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, it means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And one translation puts that last line like this. I left here full of life, and God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Now, you know Ruth had to be thinking like, what did you just say? (laughs) You've got nothing at all in your life like they can see me. (laughs) Naomi, I'm standing right here. You've got nothing. What about the whole speech I just gave? Like God and death and burial and severity and all that stuff. What about that? Nothing but the clothes on your back. I mean, Ruth is literally standing next to Naomi as Naomi calls her nothing. Which just also goes to show that when you're in pain and hurting in life, Sometimes you can't see the great thing that's standing right in front of your nose. Naomi was so concerned about who wasn't with her, she couldn't see who was. She was so broken by what she had lost, she couldn't see what she had gained. How do you think Ruth felt in this moment? I think she felt used overlooked, unseen, taken advantage of. And you know what? She was, she was. Because sometimes people in their poverty and their fear and pain, they can overlook us, right? They can use us at the very moment. We're just trying to help them. And it would be so easy right here for Ruth in this moment to walk away from an entirely justifiable relational offense. But Ruth doesn't do it. And this is why she shines. This is why she is her namesake. Ruth actually means Friendship. Ruth gives Naomi grace. She passes the test. Is this us, huh? Is this us? Or do we say, nothing can separate us except that little thing you said last week. I know. Nothing can separate us except that thing somebody else said about you. I'm not going to actually follow up with you about that, but that's okay. You know, nothing can separate us except you didn't call me back or text me back or email me back. No, no. Do we say this? Listen, I'm not talking about fundamentally abusive situations or people. No, no, I'm just talking about life and the way we can get our wires crossed and hearts tangled. Can you see why Ruth is a far better friend than most of us? Right? She's a far better friend than I am. I know it. Ruth's got grit first. She gives grace second. And third, she shows us this third G in friendship. It's called gratitude. Grit, grace, and gratitude. Here's the gratitude question. To what lengths will you go, will I go, to show your gratitude to someone else? Look at this. When Ruth and Naomi get back, now chapter two, they flash forward a bit, they hatch this desperate plan for survival because, you know, they got to eat. So Naomi sends Ruth all alone out of the field of this older, single, male relative, love interest, hint, 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 wealthy landowner named Boaz to take some grain out of his field and survive. Now, why does she do this? Is she like stealing here? Is you know, is Naomi endorsing theft? Actually, not at all. When Ruth goes to glean grain in Boaz's field, she does so because it was the right of poor people in that day to do so. Because God had commanded landowners in his law to not reap all the grain, not maximize all the profits to the uttermost, but had instructed them to leave some of the profit on the table for the benefit of the poor. This is what we might call systematic social justice. Now, not the liberal kind, not the conservative kind, it's the Bible kind, okay? And because there is this system in place in God's law, she is able to go glean the surplus grain. So when Boaz meets her there, no, we get an idea of the danger she was in and what she risked. Boaz said this to her, chapter two. He said, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And later Naomi says, oh, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. This is showing us the point is that Ruth was in danger as she goes to help Naomi. Why? Because Ruth was not just a woman in that day with no man to protect her, no. She was a Moabitess, and those two nations, again, had a long history of racial and cultural conflict. So Boaz here has to order his men, hear me, not just to stay away from Ruth, but the phrase he uses to lay a hand on. That is a Hebrew euphemism for sex. In other words, Boaz is ordering his men not to rape her. See, she's risking quite a lot hmm, to show her gratitude to Naomi, what about us? Now I'm not saying, of course, to risk anything at all or your life in the same way that root is here. Not at all. All I'm saying is this. All I'm saying is that having true friends will cost you. It'll cost you. Being a friend you know this will absolutely impoverish you at times. It won't make sense because true friendship isn't like a cost-benefit analysis thing you get on a spreadsheet at the end of the year and analyze if you're gonna re-up your investment for the next, no, no, no. If it doesn't cost you to stay in a relationship at some point, that person isn't your friend, huh? He or she was just kind of your vendor, like a vending machine, you were kind of knocking on and putting in 25 cents and getting the, you know, the Coke or the chips out of. You were, you were just a fan, not a friend, not a friend. Fans come and go. Friends, they remain. And Ruth, she risks so much that by the end of the book, even Naomi's acquaintances come to her and say, look, Naomi, look. So they say, look. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Now, seven was the number, ancient number of completion. They're saying, look, 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 look." Naomi, Ruth has been a better friend to you than a perfect family could have been. You say, man, this is a lot. To make, create, sustain this kind of friendship is costly. It is risky. And you know what? If you're thinking that, feeling that, you're right. It is. It takes grit. It takes grace. It requires demonstrated gratitude. Where can we get the power we need to live out these kind of friendships while we are all on the road toward our future? We don't see it in chapter one, but by the time you you get to the end of the book in chapter four, you find out that, of course, spoiler alert, Ruth and Boaz have fallen in love. They have this miraculous sort of courtship and, and marriage, and soon after that, the book tells you about a child they have, a child named Obed. And that child himself has a, a child who has himself a son who grows up to be Israel's greatest king, a man named David. And David has a child who has a child who has a child. And many centuries later, one of those children would be, yes, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And when you get them to, to the very first chapter of the first book in the New Testament, the first book all about the life of Jesus Christ the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew begins by listing all the forefathers of Jesus. This was a first century way of creating a resume. See, to list someone's ancestors was a way of trying to prove someone's worth. It was like listing a person's references. It was a way of saying, if you want to know who this person is in the present, go look at, go talk to all these people in their past. Talking with these people in the past helps you understand this person in the present. So... When Matthew wants you to understand who Jesus is, who does he list? Yeah, a whole bunch of amazing men and some not so good, but he also did something that no one else did in his day. He listed a handful of women. And one of those women was Ruth. And who was Ruth? An outsider, homeless, a foreigner in a strange land who worked for the redemption of a broken life and family. You say, oh, that's so nice. God likes the underdog. No, no, no. It's more than that, hear me. Matthew's saying, to really see Jesus, you've got to see Ruth. And if you see who Ruth is truly, now you can truly see who Jesus is and what he came to do. So how can we see that? Like this. Like Ruth looked at Naomi, Jesus has looked at you and me and us. You, having nothing could give nothing to him. And he still came into your life. Jesus, the ultimate racial outsider, the ultimate foreigner to our world. And still he looked at you and me and he said, your people will be my people. My God will be your God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Oh, but Jesus, he's even greater than Ruth is. Because unlike Ruth, who actually did one day lose Naomi through death, Jesus loved you so much that even his own death couldn't keep you from him. He was resurrected as the son of God with power to redeem every last broken bit of your heart and life. See, Ruth's choice shows you how Jesus loves you, chooses you, and stays in relationship with you. You can do nothing for him, have nothing to give him, but he covenants with you to save you. That, my friends, is the gospel. That's the gospel. And when you see Jesus choosing you like that, loving you like that. Now, you and I, we can do this for others. Let me close with this thought little story here. This past week, I had a, had a great time at our annual staff and deacon Christmas party, and we have this every year, and part of what made this one so great this past week was that we were actually together in person. Yeah, how about that? And when I got there, I was thinking back, on the way to here, actually, I was thinking back to our, what our party was like in 2020, just a year before, and actually, how sad. That party was for me, and here's why. Because in 2020, we just met over Zoom for the party, and we did something called a goose chase. Some of you have heard about this, which are super fun. It's basically like a, uh, a digital app-based scavenger hunt where you use this app to complete these uh, objectives, and you, you know, use your camera or smartphone, take a picture, and you upload them, and you get points, and of course, the winner is the one with the most points in a timed game. And so uh, you do this, and so we're, we're all doing this together, and we said go. And everybody started from where they were at home, except I wasn't at home. I actually did the game from my office across the street all alone on a Friday night. I know, Carrie couldn't make it that night. Our kids had an activity. So it was just me, the only one here in the whole property at seven o'clock on a Friday night, but I did my best. And we got started and I got off to this great start, thank you very much, like I was flying through the objectives and I'm completing the task left and right. I turned the whole church in like my home base, like I'm using the kitchen, I'm using the stuff, you know, from the reception desk and stuff in, the, in my office and in the lobby and then I started to feel badly because I'm thinking part of the reason I'm winning is because I'm doing this all alone. Like there's no one else to slow me down. Like pesky spouses, you know, or Children, or something, you know, and then, and then I'm feeling extra badly because I'm thinking, let's face it, you know, no one actually wants me to win because, you know, it always seems rigged that the pastor wins the game, right? You don't want that. And, and winning isn't the point, even though I have to remind myself of this, right? So, but as the game went on, and, and I'm way off of this early lead, when we got down the list of objectives, a number of them started to begin to involve other people. In, uh, on their team in order to complete them. And I was like, I don't have a team. I'm team me, you know. I can't do these. And slowly but surely, you know, the other teams began to fly past me and they overtook me and went way past me and maybe I finished like in 10th place at best. Here's what I learned. And sure, because I started out on my road, my chase, my hunt, all alone, I started fast and I got ahead. But what gave me an advantage in the beginning cost me in the end because I went alone I went fast but those who went together went further and did better and in the same way church listen that is the power of friendship the power of friendship helps us go further be better together so church let's look at now at Jesus and find the grit find the grace the gratitude to express to go further and be better together hope you can say amen to that let me take a moment and pray for us. God, I thank you today for this powerful story. My favorite one, all your scriptures. Thank you for God. Thank you for the gospel in Ruth. And I pray today, as we, as we hear Ruth's words and we see Jesus' life, those would transform us into the kind of people who can create and sustain the power of friendship. Lord, I know sometimes at holidays, Christmas season, it's such a struggle. Friendships, family relationships, it's been so much of a struggle in our culture. Things coming, going, changing. I yeah, thank you for this example of these two women. It was a friendship that saved the world. Let us have those here, I pray. Would you give those to us where we lack them? In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.